0: Writing series, you are in for a treat today of Oregon, and to introduce her is Amanda Martin Sandino.
1: dark hyperbolic humor, a visual riot, riot of pastiche detritus, abject for less floral shows and other far-fetched festivals. I first became acquainted with the girl and Laura Glennon's particular approach to this in-your-face approach to feminism at a 2009 Cultural Studies Association panel on the queerified body and autoethnographic poetics. The book Girlesque, the new girly, grotesque, burlesque poetics, was introduced by a panel of radical Dyke theorists with a simple explanation. Every femme, woman, and girl <coughs> needs to read Laura Glennum's introduction. Co-edited with the fabulously articulate Ariel Greenberg, Girlesque as a book and as literary enactment enacted performance finds a place for the so-called low arts, a.k.a. objects and persons of female desire. By first recognizing that women's artistic pursuits and pleasures are often in and of themselves pushed to the margins of that which is accepted as high art, think of the manner in which artists like Lady Gaga are brushed aside as pure pop, or how makeup tutorials are seen as capitalistically versus aesthetically themed. And secondly, demonstrating how these practices become sexualized, with My Little P- with My Little Pony porn, for example, the girlesque offers an avenue for intergenerational female empowerment, and no, not the quiet kind. Fledham's four books of poetry define this aesthetic and political lifestyle by demonstrating the power inherent in this female practice of being disgusting, being cute being a fuck-happy slut. She further finds the joy in these acts in the manner in which the chronicling of femaleness is defiantly polyphonous. Best yet, she's also the recipient of a Fulbright and an NEA translation fellowship and teaches at the LSU MFA program, demonstrating that more than a few people recognize her brilliance and the significance of her aesthetic creations. It is with the grace of pleasure that I introduce the artist whose work David B. Applegate describes as a splattered fairy tale for today, a new flavor of poetic candy, and ultimately a pleasure read. Please welcome the irrepressible, Laura Glennon.
2: Thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you and enjoy. Thank you everyone for coming out. It's lovely to see you. Um, since you've had only burlesque, I will actually start by reading the introduction to the second burlesque anthology. Mm-hmm. Which is a, the, the second edition is vastly expanded. It's going to be an interactive ebook. And whereas the first anthology, which showcased 18 female poets and 20 visual artists, we now have. Uh, over 50 poets, we, um, as in the capacity, it's a, a digital capacity allows us to showcase video performance art um, and, and uh, happy, happy, boiling, overflowing that uh, visual art as well. Um, the first anthology uh, I conceived of as the opening of a conversation rather than um, rather than an act of Gatekeeping. I felt like it was an act of advocacy, and I wanted it to be an act of advocacy. For a stream of poetics that I saw it emerging and Ariel saw emerging, um, our feminisms overlap, they are not the same. Um, but the first anthology did not go far enough in a number of respects, which is why there will now be a second one. Um, so this is my intro to the new anthology. The girlesque is pitching girly ornaments at you like throwing stars, hurling its guts at you. Cunty female pleasure, going wombass on the mighty grip of heteropsychosis, obscene hijinks, raw balls out them. A girl getting her dick sucked by the poltergeist of history. A woman getting sucked off by the wild spook of art. DIY aesthetics, blood-laced cosmetics, defacing poetry with unicorn pee and a sharpie, strap-on, mutiny, playing hide or die in a mushrooming field, cocks. Crank-calling patricide at a slumber party mid-seance, splatter, grotesque, in a dinosaur tiara. Wearing lip gloss with names like abortion in mob, or kiss and yell, swack, opulent like a cut chandelier. This is cuteness in conversation with violence, a sub-dom relationship between glitter and girly filth, a rack of poems topping you like an iced-out power bottom. This is not a lifestyle, a brand, a clique, swag for ladies with bank girls gone wild, a -a peekaboo show of uninjured bubblegum bodies, the straight squad, a heteronormative drill. This is not cool girl irony, lounging in a leopard print baby doll in the heart of the colonial mansion, unarmed. This is not a movement, an American phenomenon, or even a stable term. This is film stylization which means artifice. This is gold stars raining down on poetry that is excessive, kitschy, insincere, badly behaved, immature, bratty, deviant, improper, tasteless. This is terminal non-compliance. This is a finger in the eye of the gobbledygook of codes of glory that reward poetry deemed authentic, sincere, mature, pure, tasteful, or refined, those jank-ass tools of surveillance gatekeepers use to keep the riff-raff out. This is the riff clubbing you with images from the beauty hole. This is an anti-empowerment aesthetic. This is warped aesthetics seeing through all the spouting active holes that culture and biology and lovers and haters have ripped open in your wondrous, dangerous body. Warbling out pop songs in a drainage ditch. Launching a battery of poems into the raw stank of failure. Damage that will not heal, but can be made to sing glorious cunty pig opera with a baller beat. So that's the intro to the new anthology, which will be out in the spring. Thank you. I'm going to read to you from a couple of projects. Um, I'm going to start with my fourth book, All Hopped Up on Fleshy Dum Dums, which came out from Sport Press last spring. Can you guys hear me okay? Does it sound okay in the back? You guys good? All right, All Hopped Up on Fleshy Dum Dums. Um, It is a gender bending baroque noir thriller, told from the eyes of a female serial killer who's in love with a character called the hotling, whose gender is indeterminate. All hopped up in fleshy dum-dums, a horror and trans. The animals in this noir are sewn into the landscape. Their charred language should be disarticulated and shoved down the player's throats. No one can speak properly with deer legs dangling out of their mouths the players should mutter darkly and the low key lighting in unbalanced compositions. They should try as best they can to get on with the more human business of police procedurals and Baroque crime fantasias. The Hotling First Encountered. Through honeycombs of peril I came, like a group of diseased animals sharing one fatty lung, to cast mine eyes upon the hotling. In a high-toned season of vertiginous suck, I found the hotling lying in swine palace, swilling to the click of media flash bulbs. Tiny vessels in the hotling's posh shifted as a twitching, malignant beauty began sucking the gears out of my sky-hole regalia. The hotling's pink mini was a punk cabaret full of art damage and spuming fountains of shagoog. When I saw the hotling played out on the burning lawn of Swine Palace, I got all wiggers. I became a ninjet. I would have bucked and fumbled across a zillion dull horizons to do a single bloodbanger in that gobbling carnival. That spasticated monkey even entered my dreams, grinning like a sacrificial lamb. I want to smash up your boojank," jank I begged. I want to chip my teeth on your knob and knob-gobble jo- knob until I bust a chunky. Blessed are the toothless, I groaned. Blessed are the freaking blind. The hobbling was several decades my junior. Rumors persisted that it hadn't been born yet, or that I was having a shameless affair with the goat-footed fetus. But the hotling was already giving me lessons in swine epidemiology, with its open mouth and bone beam. <coughs> People said the skanky little corpse only loved the paparazzi, but I was waxing besotted over the hotling's fiery dirigibles. The hotling's think stick was already strung up among my ligaments. The news channel said I'd become a bone barnacle, hot to be exercised by the hotling's gushing monk eye. I was and was not in a state of extreme discomfort. This was a state often referred to in the media as hot diggity death crotch with cannibals on top. (coughs) the grand opening of Swine Palace. My right eye was paranoid and hungry and saw cocks in the wallpaper. My left eye was the eye of childhood and feared the painted devils spilling out of the hotling's technorexic face. In those days, the hotling was boneric, strange, erotic, ambivalent, and cruel on all fours I lapped up the strange red skies that fell out of the hotling's cute maw Those starless abominations, and my fetal self-loathing bloomed on its flesh stalk. My ass wagged skyward, my tongue thickly frosted with shame gel. The ad campaign promoting the grand opening of Swine Palace involved days of aerial shows and images of smiling fetuses dragged across low-lying clouds by copulating airplanes. On the ground below, munchers and leaders arrived by the thousands and flung bloody fetus stalls at the hotling's star-crusted entourage. Someone planted a dripping root in the hotling's eyeless socket in the sky, spooge. The asshole sun shut out Luke's light. The hotling made a guest appearance at the Nerve Institute. Newsreels showed infected masses marching in formation on the torched out lawn of Swine Palace. At the charity ball thrown by cancer <coughs> victims to raise money for decadent endeavors, the Hotling and I were seen perverting the landscape in our gold nudie suits. Amidst a drunken crowd of anemic swans and pigs and surgical masks, we performed a gunked up kuchi-cha-cha. Later that night, I was ogling sick with a hornacious case of horn colic, and I vandalized the hotling. That rainy (coughs) ventriloquist snopped dog snapped at my cloud strewn eye. In torched out cities, I cried, each of my organs is a speech act and other such punk ass melancholia. The hotling was nibbling and looking up. Punches tilted outward, grains sticking to its pre- grains of light sticking to its breastbone, and I broke my fist against its horny sternum. This made the front page. Rumors of a false nose. A door in the hotling's space was rumored to lead to some kind of soft flourishing grill. The hotland face concealed a door. Through it the masses surged, clutching coats of albino fox. The masses in the Hotland space were a disfiguring cancer. The Hotland space concealed a gilded door. Many times I walked straight through that door and into Snot Lagoon. A list of alleged crimes. It was alleged, it was alleged that I was given over to rococo excess, even on the most mundane of occasions. It was alleged that I was spotted at Hotel Q with the Hotling skin tied around me like a geisha robe, and that I was attending secret meetings of the occult fornication club. It was alleged the hotling was a pathological fabrication and publicity stunt. It was alleged that I was a bizarre, poorly executed ad campaign jointly funded by the hotling and Marcel Duchamp. It was alleged that I was a total brat and gender illusionist. It was alleged that I was rejecting the bold and the beautiful and advocating on behalf of the gaudy and the half-decayed. It was alleged that I said the sentence, like the body must decompose. It was alleged that I was a classic melancholic who loses the sight, who loses the object of desire while the object is still present. It was alleged that I called for the collapse of the pastoral or that my charred animals constituted some highly illegal form of pastoral. It was alleged that I marked the demise of sincerity. It was alleged that the hotling was utter kitsch and that I was a careerist hack who made loads on institutionalized anarchy. It was alleged I was a specific brand of female paranoia. It was alleged I was antriloquizing my cunt in a sing-song voice at state sponsored dinners and functions, it was alleged that I was one monstrous cunt. The Thrilling Crimes. Clutching my incarcerated metaphysics to my emaciated chest, I spake thusly to the hotbed. <coughs> oh, suicidal mooncalf, our dominions are caving. My disabled style pretends a cataclysm or at least an unsightly rumpus with the poetry police. I disguised the glamour hotling as a catatonic 'er ne'er-do-well and snuck it across all borders and into trans. I spake to the hotling. I come from trans, trans full of voluptuous horror. In trans, I have a gothic machine that makes nerve suits and glory holes, and all of them for you, my doe-eyed blastoid. My cherry vandalism, my illegal extraction industries, all for you. I said, get in the coffin and squeak like a steak. The hotling wasn't listening, wasn't paying attention. I decided to test the hotling's allegiance, so I kicked it in its chest. The beautiful kick killed it. How joyfully everything ended. What spunk. This is my unique spiritual temperament. That night I dreamt I was pursuing cadaver dogs through a dark wood. As I walked, I ripped open a glory hole in my translucent skin. Every time I did this, I replicated myself. I ripped and ripped until I was an army of bleeders swaying on its haunches. Rumors circulated that I came on like a kinder whore in a fright wig to call upon the hotling, That I went poked goth to bend the hotling across a marble ball-and-claw side table and mount some nervo-euphoric diabolism deep in the porny woods of trans. The media said I digested the hotling in my cereal stomachs. Sources close to the hotling claimed that the hotling had secretly been hiding a three-headed cock, a three-chambered cunt, and its apocryphal fancy pants, deep in swine palace. What can you do with that? Well, I can think of a thing or two. For ages, I trailed after the immaculate heart of the hotling. Do my sex plans hide some hieroglyphic suffering? or am I merely loose? The Sensational Trial (laughs) Privately, the hotling denied ever having known my high-hogging idiolect to its mother, the cannibal. The Prosecution prosecution Charge The accused has an extensive and well-documented history of engaging in counterfeits and forgeries idolatry, cults of the dead, obscene pranks, trivialities, and ghoulish iconoclasm. The hotling pointed an accusing finger at me and wailed, bloodsucker, you traffic in tawdry images, murdering true sentiment, murdering the real. The hotling said this while hovering pale above the witness stand, channeled by a necromancer. The forensic pathologist said, My expert opinion is that the accused experiences the body as an exploded site of total defamiliarization and is calling for an end to the fetish of the unified body. The coroner showed a series of slides demonstrating that the hotling's body is not an actual body, but thousands of hideous insects in the shape of a human body. And art-like crime is a deformation zone deploying base materials that explode the subject's stable sense of self as it is propped up by the expectations of bounded, unified forms and the criminal libido, libido will not be diverted from its erotic goals and etc. 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 The hotling hissed. This is less than nothing. This is an adolescent outburst of all-encompassing nihilism. People said the hotling was a jerry rigged piece of installation art and that I was a taxidermy goat stranded in a debauched 19th-century crime scene. What's the difference? asked the magistrate, who sat next to an inflatable phallus and held an M.A. an art history. Oh sublime swoon, an onlooker. Members of the press muttered among themselves, when discourse is sublime, it accommodates defects, lack, lack of taste, and formal imperfections. Distortions of taste, even ugliness, have their share in the shock effect. Shock is, par excellence, the evidence of something happening rather than nothing. Total privation, the fear of nothing further happening, is the ultimate terror. Munchers and bleeders broke into the trial yelling that I was canoodling with strollers full of bloody fetus dolls and that I knew nothing about proper reproduction or the classical wall the classical laws of representation. (coughs) My porcine whimsies began to bleat. My eyes lost focus and morphed into two fluctuating blood red orbs, all at once bulging out of their sockets and all at once collapsing back in. It was like a lunatic's game. I felt an irresistible pleasure. Whiztastic gack spumed all over the courtroom and the necromancer's eyes rolled back into her head. The munchers started stuffing plushies into my pong box. It was all totally aglorable. Each of my ghastly organs gave evidence to the well-hung jury, well-hung. What a joyful sock in the kisser, wrote the tabloids. A licensed member of the obliterati stormed a stand. By engaging in these obscene acts, the accused had not stopped time, but contradicted and disfigured it, producing an anti-history. This hideous crime is a universe's double, a space covered in hieroglyphics. The art of cipher making is more <coughs> commonly, this act of, of cipher making is more commonly known as art. The Defense, an aria. Around you, I sang. I'm a trilling kleptosexual, game for a fever bang, game for a jerk and a skunk butter, all that pork knuckling, And who did you think I was, my little blumpkin shank? Who did you think I was, lugging all those sacks of terror around, the rancid plates in my face hole caving in? A blood hole opened up in the ether, and the hotling climbed into the the courtroom. My magic eye lollygogged on the hotling's crumb snatcher, and at once I was zogging speedy into the crush zone. I was crellous and lamb-shankered, Oh, letter mouth, the hotling moaned, going all zoom, 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 and zoinks, I caught that fur eel and ate it, smack in the middle of all that hot, weasel wreckage. The verdict. Out of the crucible comes the serially, serially digested image on which the eye busts its funk knuckle and groans. The image is not a symptom of lack, the image is an excessive residue of being. For my performance, I won a hole in the head. For my critically acclaimed performance of the hotling, I won a hole in the head. I was yawning into my handcuffs, strung up and hogtied tied to the name of the law, went out of the courtroom and merged the hotlings, several selectric cocks, while I was still charred and skidding, the mongrel cock and all its mongreloid dialects. I was allegedly all hopped up on fleshy dum-dums until another tired apocalypse. Limping along. Thank you. So I will read um, a couple of short poems before I read to you from Popcorps, which is my third book, um, and these are from my fifth book, which is entitled Junk Shot. Oh. I am not girl material. I am a boatload of sicko brat. My little pony puker, you are lost among flabby stars. I am punking irons into the skin horse, the shut eye of luminous genitalia. Here is one with a drippy, drippy bone to stuff into my media hole. The porcine wheat of empress bombs, the tunnel of bodies opens, and you go corkscrewing through. Come out, come out, and tinkle on my jugs and hotbots. I'm a jellyfish with the miseries. Call an ambulance, wah, wah, my pussy broke. We are strapped to each other like some species of occult glamour. I discharge my titters over the bodies piling out of the glass. The reanimation of my pie in a funk of vex. My eyes camp backward in my head. My burned out vision crackles on. Even mid-plague, here comes Saint Boner. Fizzling out in my strap-on grief sickle like a tap-dancing squid in diamond-studded Dior flats. See which part of me stiffens into the calcified ribs of a looted pleasure dome. See which part of me honks and falls away. The neo-animal gushes in the hole, perforated, lung-sparkled meat-joy, I am crouching atop the termite century. Pink plus weaponized, my arousal goes feral. This is gestural pudding, the tumor crown. Don't think around the muscle. I'll loosen it all up for you with obscene balloons and high kicks. My neo-animal army is foxy like that. Tuck in your giddy beef and foxy vertebrae, this place is gonna blow. In some autoerotic switcheroo, I gave up my ectoplasmic lingerie for a crack case of jelly legs, a wobbly hit of ether. In the raw abused future, I'll suck you off at warp speed and tear the teaser gland out of you. Erased plus rising, I'll find you later in the book of useless organs, a muckalicious ratfink ultra mud peekaboo a gown, down and sea urchins stilettos. The fizz dripping out of my high sockets catches fire and burns down my cake face. The way I rub your brains against my clit, my gluey matter, your one good claw scrabbles across the imperial weather room, the freak birds, Gnarl up the crummy sky My flying lotus pot pie the semiotic heel is covered in blood My thighs wobble and honk Signs grow everywhere like hair This is war, you little bitch-ass babies I drain my skin into a gigantic hairball It rolls down the flaming hill and flattens you well, hello, soldier. I'm eating mango language straight out of your face, and it's so treacly and goo-goo. I want to cart you off wrapped in gold tubes and glue you to the demon wall. Don't tell the president. I'll let you lick my insect. So that's just a bit from Jikshan. So I'll end by reading with Pop corpse very hard for me. I didn't realize this. It's very hard for me to read in front of the stationary microphone. I am mm-hmm. part of me is, it's part of it, because I'm a teacher, and part of it is just like I'm used to ranging around the room um, like a pinball. So I keep i keep starting to leave the podium. Um, but I'm still here. All right, Pop Corps, it's my third book, um, is based on, uh, it's a retelling of Han Christian Anderson's the Little Mermaid, anybody remember the general gist of the story? What's The Little Mermaid like? Sad. Sad, why sad? What's the plot? She dies at the end. <laughs> she dies at the end, she does die at the end. So before we get to the death at the end, general plot, anybody remember?
1: Yeah? Um, she was in love with this prince, and so she tried to get ladies to go and be this prince, but he was in love with this
2: other girl, and so then she dies and becomes sea.
1: Right, exactly. That's the gist of
2: it. She's a mermaid. I saw another hand up. Did somebody want to add something to the story? She got it. She got it. All right. You're happy with her version. Yeah. So, so the little mermaid, she is a, one of the daughters of the king of the sea, um, who is in my book except for he's the king of the sea, S-E-E. Um, and she is one of, she has a bevy of sisters. Her sister's in my book. This is part poetry, part play. And her sisters in my book have names like um, Cinder Skella, Blubber Socket, Person, Puckered, and there's a fourth one who I am totally betraying by forgetting off the top of my head. Um, and they, they appear in the text, but unlike the original version in which she is, the little mermaid wants legs because she's after this haughty prince on the land, right? She's going after him. My Mermaid, um, this is a post-apocalyptic retelling, in which the sea has become toxic um, and the creatures have mutated and the, the mer people have no definitive sex. So she and her sister are sort of pimped out by the king of the sea and by their mom. Um, and they have basically strap-on junk and so they can be whatever sex they want to be, right? Um, and so what she really wants is her own... Genitals. She wants to have experience her own pleasure. She wants nerve endings. She wants a body that has, you know, a full capacity for arousal and not something that can be simply stylized as somebody else's idea of of, of a pleasure socket or a pleasure wrong, whatever way, whatever way she she asked to style herself. So um, there's not a lot that you need to know other than that. Um, one thing that happens in the original um, the original fairy tale is that she's, um, there's all this dealing with the sea witch. Uh, She goes to the sea witch, if you've seen the Disney version, right? You know Ursula with her amazing octopus appendages. Um, And the sea witch is here too. But um, when she fails to keep the prince on land, she goes back to the sea witch, and the sea witch gets her knife, and so she's, and the sea witch says, you can go, and if you off the prince, well, he's, you know, yachting about on his honeymoon with his new beloved, then I'll give you back your mermaid body and you can go hang out with your sister for the rest of your life. And she's like, okay, cool. Give me the tank." And uh, so she's posed above him. She's like on the yacht, you know, like this, ready to strike. Um, And she can't do it. She looks and he's so beautiful and so moving and she's just like, I can't do it. And while she's sitting there, she's like, great, now I'm like doomed uh, to see Foam. Uh, And the original, out of nowhere these 300 disembodied female voices, spirits, come drifting out of where, heaven? Up from the sea? They suddenly appear on the horizon and they sing to her and they say, um, they say, if you join us in limbo and sing for, you sing and grieve and weep for the body of unborn, bodies of unborn children and the souls of unborn children for 300 years, then you can ascend into heaven. Because she hasn't <laughs> suffered enough, right? <laughs> through the self-mutilating, through the rejection, through like betrayal on all fronts. Now she's gotta go like sing for 300 years, what? Yeah. It's ridiculous. So um, in my book, I seal the Daughters of air er, and it's Daughters of E-R-R, Air er, as an er, <laughs> Um And they become her sisters. So when you hear the Daughters of air er mentioned, um, she and her sisters are known as the, daughter, the Daughters of air. Er. Um, I think that's all you need to know. This poem is my vocal prosthesis. Seen, there is no land, only floating islands of plastic garbage. My suffering has become frivolous and ornamental, which is to say, it now participates in luxury, mourning, war, cults, the construction of sumptuary monuments, games, spectacles, arts. You are hereby invited to wars of attrition and other showstoppers, to spectacles of ornament and excrement in undersea palaces festooned with horny mermaids. I am trying to speak in a different register, the register of candied decay, the filthy register of the half-breed, which is my own. I am poorly made, willful, death-leaning. I exhibit a failure to thrive, ill-gendered and millenarian. My flesh accrues and decomposes. I can die and die and die. Club me, opening score. The seal flesh berserking in my pants says no plus yes. My glass eye rolls across the wooden sea, the ha-ha albino sky rotting like meat in my throat. Sink your sea bunny fingers into my cremo dreamo seal meat and sorcel yourself forever and loaves of haughty blubber. Well, a mermaid is made of seal meat. A mermaid with a chopped off tail is all holes open to what evs loops through the red tubes. The clouds are the colon of forgetting. The mermaid is the forgetting of the colon plus piss tube plus snatch. Oh, mighty fuckable, I'm cutting off my own fishtail. Plug up my wild valves with your skeet lotion, with your shiny metal fingers. Here comes some marvelous deformation crawling toward you in a human suit. A mermaid is supposed to be all sea foam, pneumatic tits plus opaline hair, posed in rococo technicolor coral reefs with sprightly sea cucumbers and sweet pink jellies, a cuntless dumpling. I am so hungry for cock, I am nothing but cunt. Oh, then there are what my mother lovingly refers to as the typos. (laughs) <laughs> there are a lot of visual elements to the book. Goo Goo Lagoon. A single spotlight on Triple X. Triple X is the name of the mermaid. Obviously Triple X being the porn signifier, but also the idea of having an extra and, uh, excessive chromosome. A single spotlight on Triple X lying on a divan and a rococo undersea salon full of kitschy trinkets. Her appearance, everything about the scene should appear excessive and slightly off. The emphasis is on artifice and the unnatural. Triple X looks bored plus distracted. Her room is full of baroque oceanic taxidermy. She is fidgeting with some kind of small vessel or ornament. Triple X My father is a gillligaver and the king of the sea in his Freakopolis, the liquid children do not go in for Cozly-wozly mooncabs, But I sure do This is Disgusto neophilia Say the daughters of air You are better off in limbo Than with the smear's sonic death monkey The smear is the name of the prince to These are noised herds, Says the sea witch Texting me a torture memo The smear lives on Western Garbage Flotilla 5, a.k.a. the Isle of Noise. He is crazy beautiful. They say he is also just plain crazy. The smear hangs out at the undersea yum factory all Wowza in his fly threads of skull meat. Once I saw him on a dock, tying bloody fetal hairs to his torso, a lobster cage over his head, a tail light blinking in his ass cheeks, They say when he jerks off, stars explode, and that he is opposed to absolutely everything. After his emergency transport vehicle sank, I retrieved him from the kill site, and we got deep in the freak bucket and totes brills with the boo cream, his squeal cheese weighing in my blood tanks, his human meat flouncing in my inexplicable hand, my compact corpuscles discharging into history my seal-meat berserking. And later, he didn't even recognize me. And still, he continued riding the ETVs down to the Yum Factory. And I didn't approach him, because I got no holes to fuck with, no legs, nothing in between. Little married maid, in her shit-stain of a story, boo hoo. I'm going to skip ahead a bit. Um, a scene in which we see her at the young factory having long dialogical arguments about uh, sex and an embodiment with her sisters, the daughters of here. Um, A thing to know before I read from this section is that there's uh, we also discover in the meantime that uh, Triple X is a webcam girl and she is um, she repeatedly turns on her cam, goes online, turns on her cam, and she has a drill set and she's constantly drilling holes into our body. So she's a self-cutter and a mutilator and a camera. Girl. All this happens in the scenes. scene. What I'm going to read to you now is a scene that's called the Royal Disorder Panic Party where she actually uh, first gets to talk to the smear. She's rescued him once. He doesn't remember her, um, but this is the point at which uh, it's the annual gala that her parents throw Um, and she and her sisters are there The Royal Disorder Panic Party A massive marine grotto pulsing sick with raucous sea junk Everything flashes and throbs The daughters at air enter sporting glow-in-the-dark prosthetic snatches All except Triple X who wears a hot pink merkin Master of Ceremonies The Royal Disorder Panic Party is getting underway Send in the hooligan sea kittens with deracinated faces. Send in the junk bunnies with malignancy twitching in their crank holes. Send in the contamo sea ghouls. Let the festivities begin. Kinder whore, cycling up. How's the party, girls. Triple X, crikey, the usual squid. Cinder skella. it's a serious crop of bones in here tonight. There's a high level of miracle prevention. Blubber socket, ooh girl, it's octocock. Kinder triple X, blarg. Cinder Skella, and look who's right behind him. The smear enters wearing cop glasses and a sequined ball gown smeared with goat shit. The gown has a plastic window cut out for his genitals, which are painted red. He is regal and beautiful. Triple X. The smear. Oh, my jumble of flesh inches up onto the lip of this revolutionary night. Cinder drags Triple X over to the group of bivalve hotties the smear has joined. Cinder Scala, Hi. You two know each other, I think. The smear. I used to be stereotyped for my ambulance good looks and a smile that says, I just stabbed myself at the sharp end of a compass. Triple X. Um, hi. The smear. I used to tame dead horses and count cockroaches on the gnarled arms, arms at the downtown pretenders. Cinderskella. Downtown pretenders. The smear. Then came the angel. It woke me one night, poking me with a rifle to check if I was asleep or imitating its dead cousin. Cinder, Cinder Are you on eel crack or what? The Smear, I was imitating its dead cousin. Cinder Scala rolling her eyes. What else creep? I'm going to go swill some conch piss. The Smear, I was powerful as only a spoiled child can be. The angel was spoiled as only meat can be. It taught me to rifle through the faces of faceless victims. Octocock, <coughs> sizing up to triple X. You're the infamous print- princess exacto. The princess with the webcam and the cutting box, right? Blubber socket. Yep, she's a famous color, all right. Triple X. It's a uh, performance art. Person and puckered. More like torture porn. Triple X. Blushing and turning to the smear. I think we've met once before that time your ETV sank. I have rescued you. The smear. It was the year of the scab. And there was no room for people who act like lawn fires when they should be modeling the latest symptoms in remodeled scriptoriums person puckered. This is it, X. What is wrong with you? That guy's like a total freak. Blubber socket, I'm out. I gotta go to my number on the floor show. Two triple X. Text me when his head explodes. By the way, you're on right after me. Triple X grinning. Okay. I gotta go. The smear calling after her. Meet me tonight at the taxidermy museum of your choice. Blubber socket. is he always like that? Octocop. Only when he's rumored... have been alone for five weeks straight watching seal porn and smoking his own burnt cum. The smear muttering, I want to learn to touch you like extinct animals. So far I've only got the panting right. Triple X aside, in your silver aviator glasses you look like a sadist but you are what? Look at the fantastic hole in your torso, the historical light of misery flooding through. An embarrassment of bitches. A floor show for fishinistas. This is the floor show that the Daughters of Air are required to put on every year. Hashtag, I am a sea fairy and you are a rude mechanical. Hashtag, your anus heart gives me a retard on. Hashtag, we've nothing but runny bottom motion, let's drill. Hashtag, you fisted my future with your golly golly, I'm a wreck you, I'm a fierce dumbwart, stewed and glittery monkey jizz. Hashtag, you are so ro- careless and rotten with that cock I love filth, too. Hashtag, welcome to the idiotech. Hashtag, a girl is a spectacle is a pot of licky holes, right for your buttery reaming. Hashtag, shave off my mouth like a bunion. Make me a hairless wonder, sir. Hide the whole alpha bee while I clean off to vermin, humping in a wig. Hashtag, I am needy bats. Hashtag, hashtag bozo, I need you. My clit lolling at, out. Muckling, hard-belt, pop my dumpling, please. Hashtag queen of dum and holy war whistles. I am eating out my own chest in silent jubilation. Hashtag no one smiles this much blood. Hashtag I am a teen witch. Hashtag oops, I dropped my eyes inside your boy panties and got a retard on. Hashtag lols. Hashtag I am a teen witch. Hashtag our shelled bodies record the history of the final wars. Hashtag, put your boss hog on my boss gloss and crush me with your phenomenal junk. Hashtag, I twinkle hot. You have retarded my days into a, narcole- a narcoleptic stammer, a pickup. hiccup. Hashtag, I can't find my bloody panties. Hashtag, the bone world is ending in explosive fright and loud streamers. Hashtag, slut ever. Hashtag, hi, I just met you and here we are. Two hot twinks fucking on a benthic brain fart. Thank you. <laughs> I'm happy these questions
1: have any? Yeah. Well, what inspired uh, this one? Were you just reading a little mermaid and wanted to like basically reimagine it, deconstruct it in a way?
2: What inspired <coughs> it? Yeah. Um, you know fairy tales, I mean I'm very interested in fairy tales in general. Um, because they're cultural material that we receive before we have any filters in place. I mean, not that we don't have filters in place as children, but they're sort of like, um, they're more ambiently in place, right? And so I'm interested in the idea that uh, with this story, what stuck with me was the aspects of self mutilation, the very obvious, obvious, like ridiculously obvious um, metaphor of uh, a, a female figure going after. Uh, Cis man and um, (coughs) gouging her, being willing to gouge out her tongue and to cut off her body and to acquire legs. In the fairy tale, she loses her tongue, so she loses her voice. And it says that with every step she takes, uh, it feels like she's walking on knives, right? So the sacrifice is huge. Um, And then it all just goes like from shit to shit to shit. Like it's just like a total wash for her. So the way in which this material seemed to be irredeemable and the layers of suffering like I said with the Daughters of Air like who hadn't even been in the story coming in the end to redeem the narrative like this is not a redeemable narrative for me so um, it's impossible for me not to want to get in there and torque it and like redeem that sucker um, or at least like twist it and um, twist it and torque it out of its origin like its sort of uh, originating sucker
0: the way you write I have to come over here, I'm sorry that's okay
2: the way you uh, were reading it it's like packed full of
0: very specific words Mm -hmm. do you write in like a flurry and then like revise and take a bunch of stuff out or do you go like line by line really slowly and choose everything
2: that's an interesting question the way I write um, my process is generally there are a couple things going on Um, at the level of language, we're all constantly moving through veils of language, right? There's like whatever's coming across your social media feed, there's what's coming on radios that you are purposely tuned into, radios that are playing when you're like out moving about the world, there's dialogue that you're a party to that you overhear, like are just veils and veils and veils of language. And so for me, I'm not someone who writes all the time. um, But I get into a space in which words start feeling tactile to me. So I hear, I start hearing words and they start sounding sticky. So I hear a word, I jot it down. I hear another word, I jot it down. It's all <coughs> on one page. I start filling up the page, the words start sticking to each other. And I'm like, look at all these amazing sticky, hot sticky words. Like clearly I'll write pages and pages out of this. And inevitably I write one dense one <coughs> from it. Um, but I write in spurts, I write in streaks. And, um, but I'm also just like, uh, a, just like, a, a relentless editor, a relentless editor, because the sound is so important to me, what it looks like on the page, the way the material, you can't see it because you're in the audience, but like, um, my poems are pretty highly spatialized, this is mild compared to what the looks like, which has a lot of visual detritus um, floating through, Um, and so it, it it matters a lot to me, Um, and it's very, very hard to get the sequencing to where I want it to be, and even like I'm, i starting to feel like Walt Whitman, like, as I read my material, and like, I need to go back and rewrite. <laughs> I need to go back and rewrite this. Um, so it's both. I write the and I edit like crazy. Yeah.
1: Um, being a feminist artist, how do you deal with your art being misunderstood by, like, or hypersexualized or misunderstood by, like, the male gaze or altered in a way that you don't intend it to be?
2: Well, that's a good question. And the question is, like, how I would know that was happening. Um, I'm super aware of that, uh, of that possibility. Um, and The fact that any time that a woman is going to talk about sex or talk about questions and embodiment, especially if it seems to be coming from a personal place, even though my writing is personal, but it's highly performative, right? Um, you can't be, as a female artist, you can't be like Walt Whitman and be like, I took off my clothes and walked naked down by the stream and commune with naked, people. you can't say that statement without it being read as a sexual overture, right? It's impossible to strip those nuances away, which I think is part of the reason that I like push hard in the other direction. It's also part of my interest in the grotesque. It's why, um, um, like, I mean it when I talk about the girless, when I'm framing the gir- girless as an anti-empowerment aesthetic. This is not about, um, this is not about um, using one's body as a form of capital to make other forms of capital. Specifically, as a white cisgendered woman. That's something that I, I really don't want to plug into, um, so it's part of the reason that I only write grotesque so heavily um, and try to try to create texts that have um, sites of pleasure and sites that may seem familiar, but then wanting to really be familiarized those own by allowing a lot of other um, uh, images and rhetoric into the text. So I mean, who knows? Like I may fail utterly, and there are people who are going to read me as they read me, but. Um, I'm very, very alive to the question you're asking, and I think it's a, I think it's a concern for all, for all uh, female writers. <coughs> Other questions?
0: Yeah, can you talk? I mean, um, I have a bazillion questions for you, uh, uh, but uh, I have one bit of gossip for you.
2: Oh, okay. fascinating!
0: Yeah, um, about the Little Mermaid. So or, I don't know if you know these people, but if you don't, then it won't be good gossip. But uh, do you know Kathleen Hanna and Yeah, and do you know uh, what's her name? Who sang for Hole?
2: Courtney uh, to-
0: Yeah. Do you know them? Yeah. Are they friends? No, okay. no, I don't know them personally. <laughs> so the Little Mermaid, the Disney film, they originally asked Kathleen Hanna to do the Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid <laughs> Um and, uh, and she sent them to Courtney Love instead because she thought that Courtney Love would work with Disney. So that's the piece of gossip for you. <laughs> that's fascinating. It's funny. Um, my question has to do with the relationship between undermining language and using the... Um, uh, some of the models of narrative, like yeah, I, it's, it's really fascinating to me how you're using um, or how I'm seeing you use like the scaffolding of narrative um, t- as a like sort of a to me it helps me find a place within the um, Overwhelm of twisty languages mm-hmm. that you're doing mm-hmm. and so can you talk to me about how you are doing those things? Yeah, I can.
2: Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really preoccupied with um, I read to you the, from Junk Shot, which is my fifth book, and those are like tiny, tiny poems. But other than that book, and other than my first book, I tend to write across books, and they tend to be hybrid projects. They often have uh, their per play. They have, like I said, visual elements, a lot of pastiche language, um, uh, solo language, found language, whatever you want to call it. Um, but narrative is super important to me. Um, and the way that, again, the way that I find myself into narrative with Maximo Laga, which is my second book, I um, was a classics minor as an undergraduate, like 5,000 years ago. And uh, studied a lot of Greek and, and Sanskrit, and um, was always struck by the myth of Queen Pesipe who is the Minotaur's mother. And the Minotaur, Minotaur is the result of her having sex with a bull there's all these layers of intervening narrative um, in which it's actually Daedalus, um, you know, father of Icarus, court artificer, who builds a machine so that you can have sex with a bull. So there's like, it's a weird nexus of personalities and characters. And there are just things that's like, uh, in terms of narrative, like I I mean, I love fiction. I read my nightstands or both my nightstands are overflowing on my bed and you know, half of it is fiction. Um, So So, so narrative is hugely important to me. And right now, in my sixth book that I'm working on, I'm actually rewriting. I don't know if you guys know uh, Edward Allen Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher. You know this story? It's like so hyperbolic and crazy and amazing. Um, And um, in my version, it's called The House of (laughs) Usher. And uh, if you know, it's about like this long ancestral ancient house of Usher, um, which is both the house of the takes Place and also the dynastic lineage. And it's at the end of the line because they've thrown, they've, they haven't spawned any male lines because they keep in reading. it's an incestuous family. And they're also all artists and art dealers. <coughs> and so it's like impossible not to want to get your hands on this material. And the brother writes to a friend who um, who has childhood friend, and says, come help me. I'm in this like nervo euphoric state. I'm really distressed and please come help me and he convinces a friend to help bury his twin sister who's also his lover alive and the friend doesn't realize that she's dead and then she comes springing out of the crypt later and uh, falls on the brother and then she dies and he dies. Like, it's, I mean it's a kind of narrative that's like I was exposed to this at a very young age. Like I, was, I probably read poem oh, like in three or something um, and so in my rewriting of it um, I'm telling it from Madeline's sister's perspective, and it's not prose, it's exploded poetry, the way that these things are exploded poetry. And the uh, the brother is William Blake, the romantic poet, who, again, was a very, very early influence for me. And in the book, you can't tell if he's a poem star or a porn star, um, it's all sort of very fuzzy. And the friend that he calls to the scene to come help him bury his sister is, is Albert Hitchcock. So there's like this obsessive lineage, you know, Poe po has this quote, and again, it's these kind of things that's stick in my craw. Poe has this quote, which I'm going to botch: um, that there is no more, uh, there's no more universally poetic and beautiful topic in the world than the subject of a beautiful dead woman. Or something. <laughs> and so, in the face of like the murdered women of Juarez and domestic violence and um, revenge porn and um, um, sexual assault, like it's a very, it's very dangerous and damaging kind of thing to say, but it's also in many ways, if you look at the, the romantic tradition through, you can draw a line through Hitchcock to our current day, the death of the, the, the female other, literally or figuratively becomes the end game of the male artist, right? And so it's really explicit in the po, Um it's very explicit in Hitchcock, obviously psycho with vertigo. And, I mean, I say this as someone who loves Hitchcock, um, but the relationship was very deeply conflicted for me. So the narratives I tend to write out of are, um, um, I tend to be drawing on narratives that I've been invested on for a very, very long time, and have a super-comfortable relationship with. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but mean, um, com- narrative is a compulsion for me, as much as bending the mm-hmm. words on the page
0: and listening to the song. I think that conflicted relationship part is like the it's it's like the um, it's the hinge or the bridge. It has you know it has to be a conflicted relationship to be doing both of those to be needing to stage both of those um, with both of those techniques. Right, and to have that much productive energy to behind it. Yeah, absolutely. Other questions? Yeah. So
2: you're
0: talking
1: about. uh,
2: That's a really good question. Um, that's a really good question. And I try to be, um, I mean, I think it's the kind of thing that anybody who's working with narrative, whether they're fiction or poetry, it's like how much hand do you do when it comes to cultural references? Whether it's the arc of a story that you're fictioning, right? Or whether it's simply cultural material, background material you referencing, how much do you give um, and how much do you assume a reader knows? And, and I don't know that there's a clear answer to that. Um, I know that it's something that I try to pay a lot of attention to, and that I also assume that I want the text to work, like especially the, the Usher Gusher text I'm working on now, which comes from, I was at a conference uh, a couple of years ago, and there were these two uh, well-known male experimental poets, and they said something about um, experimental female poets, uh, blah, 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 said one poet, and the other one said, oh, they don't write poems, they're just cunt gushers. And I was like, I have a con crusher. I'm like, I'm going to take that. I'm like, going to mobilize your line. Um, so, so, all this to say, like, I want when someone reads this, um, it's, it's actually called Rehearsal Through Extinct Anatomies, the House of Crusher project. When it, when someone reads Rehearsal Through Extinct Anatomies, I want them to be able to move through it, even if they have no clue, even if they're not a Hitchcock fan, they don't know the reference material. The material has got to be strong enough and compelling enough in its own universe um, and all these interlocking spheres of characters and language and practices that they, it has to it has to move um, for someone who doesn't know. Um, and if someone's interested, then they might go back and find the original and then there's gonna be some spot that the audience who knows or remembers dimly, you know. Um, but I think it's my responsibility to not, um, not have my text exist in exclusively parasitic relationship, not to entail that knowledge, like to make that sucker Yeah. Other questions? I you have one more question. Yes. Just knowing the name of the room a little bit and then
0: I'll stop. But um, What's the difference for you between reading um, work, or uh, when people say that I'm offended by your work and people say, I'm freaked out by your work. And, and do you judge what, and, and I'm thinking, because I bet you there's probably people in this room who might not have ever, like, or that often ever even heard the word cunt out loud, yeah. especially not in a formal setting, yeah. and over and over again in a poem, and definitely not to do with The Little Mermaid. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like We just yeah. don't say cunt and The Little Mermaid in the same room, you yeah. know what I mean? So, and then, like, and then that, that attached to your body. So so I'm thinking like some people might be like, oh my God, that was so offensive. And like, I needed a trigger warning for that. And other people might be like, wow, I'm really freaked out. How do you deal with the balancing of, um, uh, what What do you think about with the balancing of uh, making people uncomfortable?
2: Um, I think that for me, the art that involves me the most, and I think that the way that I work as an artist, is that most of the art that... Um, really engages me, and engages me over months and years, um, is art that does make me uncomfortable. Because I think that one of the great things that art does is it has the ability to sort of like reach its hands into us and pull out the wiring of our social coding and our expectations of of what a poem can be, what a language can be, um, what a body can be, the body of the text, the body of the human. Like I think art has this radical capacity for unmaking. and I don't I, I take that very, very seriously. I'm not someone who thinks that art is um, simply ornamental, even though I'm very interested in the idea of ornament excessive ornamentation in the Baroque. Um, I don't think art is is um, is in any way um, strictly ornamental. I think it, I think it has like um, a very very kind of radical power and if you if if you're going to you know, it's like the lady becomes in line where she says I know it's ahead of I know it's a poem if I feel like the top of my head is being has been chopped off. I just got your but um, <laughs> um, but you know, she says that and we're used to repeating that and hearing that and being like, Yeah, the power of the poem But like that's not a comfortable feeling. Right? I mean like like full frontal assault is not a comfortable feeling. Um, and so for me, because the art that I love is art that um, tends to hit a lot of different registers, and um, and some of those registers make me deeply uncomfortable. When I write, I often feel deeply uncomfortable, I often feel freaked out about what I write. Um, I'm a writer who doesn't know, I don't necessarily know what I'm making, even though it's like, as you hear me talk about my project, you hear that I have characters in place, I have certain um, ideas about romanticism and and what's happening with Ginger, like I have sort of like an ambient idea of what's happening but I don't really know until I'm working the page and if I'm not surprised by what comes out on the page, nobody else is going to be surprised, right? Um, So that is something that I have to live with my own discomfort Um, and um, I tend to be someone who like the language of my poetry is uh, extremely hyperbolic Um, but in that has its own life apart from me and my speaking self and my speaking persona. So there is, like, if I stop and think about it, on one hand, I'm very used to what I write. am um, so used to it that I forget that it freaks people out. I forget that it's, like, novel in some way. Um, but there's also a part of me that is still freaked out about it. Um, so I don't know if I strike a good balance. Um, but I would say, I mean, I would encourage people to... I think as artists, it's always really important to look at what makes us uncomfortable and what we resist and why. Um, And sometimes things that make us uncomfortable and that we resist are things that you are absolutely dangerous and that you want to stay away from. And sometimes they're things you actually want to push further into. And that's a very, very personal call.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. you said to mm-hmm. me, you said like using one's body as a form of capital and kind of just mapping that idea.
1: And I'm wondering about the
0: role of like fantasy and the speculative in doing that and whether um, you've ever worked in the explicitly personal mm-hmm. And like what I think is
2: it like, possible with each English kind of... Have like, uh, I ever worked in explicitly personal, personal form? form. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> yeah. For, like use or like perform your own body. It's a really good question because I don't understand always where my art begins and where I end. Um, and because the material, my, uh, my work is like obviously I'm very interested in artists, right? Um, and it's sort of archly performative. But at the same time, uh, the core of my preoccupations is like on radical display. And the core of my struggles and obsessions. I'm a, I'm a writer who writes by their own, yeah, their own preoccupations and obsessions, which um, is productive for me. Um, so it all feels very personal to me, even though it feels very staged and is like actually formally, because there's so much playwriting that happens. There is actually a lot of staging. Um, it still feels very, it feels very personal to me. So are, are you asking like for a more? Um, a more what we would consider a confessional mode, in which the eye, yeah. the eye, we have this idea that the eye is transparent. Yeah. Um. I guess I, I guess I don't believe that the eye can ever be transparent. I think that the eye is. Um. um I think that that, that one can that making the eye transparent is a stylistic choice. Um, to say that the same way that occluding or staging the eye or pluralizing the eye, there's a lot of different things that one can do with an eye, and that making it transparent is is really more about style um, than than anything. And there are certain reasons. There's a lot of writing that I really value that has a very has a very transparent eye stylistically, um, and I tend to I think because I. I both been drawn to and mistrust spectacle um, and um, works of sort of faulty imagination that I'm drawn to that space um, but that's just a personal proclivity it's personal proclivity I mean certainly when I read to you something like the Interpretive Arlesian Anthology that's very close to I mean it's kind of mutinous but um, that's pretty close to a more transparent eye The thoughts, questions, diatribe, serangs. <laughs> well, thank you. You guys have been a very generous and Do you have any
0: books for
2: sale? I don't. I see you guys have the first edition of the Girl Anthology.